Grab your message notes that look like this. This morning we continue our series, Everyday Sacred. We are going through the book of James in the Bible, which is all about making your everyday sacred, bringing your faith into everyday life. You say you have a Christian faith. Okay, that's great. But how does it affect the way you face tough times? How does it affect the way you talk? How does it affect the way you treat other people? Because it should have some effect. That's what the book of James is all about. Now, this morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite topics, sacred decisions. How do you bring your faith into your choices, into your decision-making process? Every day, you and I make dozens of decisions, some of them very major. Many of you are grads this month. And you are facing decisions that that just loom like mountains in front of you. How does your faith affect that? How do you know if you're making the right choice? At the end of one of my favorite movies, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anybody else like that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? All right, at the end of it, three travelers enter a mysterious cavern. And there they see that the cavern is filled with many cups, one cup, and only one will give the one who drinks from it long life. All the other cups bring instant death. And one of the travelers, the evil one, wants to know which one is the right one. Which one is it? You must choose. Choose wisely, for as the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. Wow. So they're all false except for one. So the evil traveler looks at all the cups, and he picks one that he sure is the right one, lifts it to his lips, drinks from it. And immediately his skin melts away as he becomes a living skeleton. Then his head explodes and he crumbles into dried dust on the cavern floor, dead. And the guardian of the cave says, He chose poorly. Now, if you have a tough time making decisions, scenes like that haunt you. Because you see basically all of life like that. Every time you are faced with a choice, you think, there's only one right choice, one right house to live in, one right city to move to, one right job for me to take, one right college for me to go to, one right mate, one right car to buy. And you are so afraid that you're going to make a choice and that one day God will look at you and shake his head and say, He chose... In my own life, this has been one of the toughest battles. Indecision has just paralyzed me at times. So what does the Bible, and specifically the book of James, have to say about this? How can I know what God wants me to do? Now, this is so important. James talks a lot about wise choices, and he describes, it's interesting, he describes an indecisive person this way at the beginning of James 1.8. He says, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. 
In Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, the word double-minded literally means two-souled. Like your soul is being split down the middle. It's going in two different directions. Like William James said, the most miserable person in the world is the person who is habitually indecisive. Why? Because life is full of decisions. Life is basically a series of choices that we have to make every single day. So if you have a hard time with choices, you're going to have a hard time with life. This is no minor issue. It has tortured some of you. So let's look at God's solutions for that tension, some biblical guidelines for decision-making. Now, I listed a bunch of resources at the bottom of the notes on page two for further study on this, but in the few minutes we have here today, let's go over some guidelines about how I can make good, solid, wise decisions. I'm going to start with the the two verses in James chapter one where Adrian left off last week, but then I want to show you verses from throughout James, because James does talk about this topic so much, and to try to make these a little bit easier to remember, I I outlined it so they start A, B, C, D, E. Ready? Here we go. A stands for this. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Here's where it all starts. You say, Holy Spirit, I am asking you to give me wisdom. James 1, 5, first part of it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Just to drive the point home, I want you to circle the words, ask God. Just every morning say, Lord, I really want to do your will today. That calms you down. It gets you focused. You know, when I was in high school, I did a lot of idiotic things. I don't want you to get the wrong wrong impression, but I did start one lifetime habit that was really good. Every single morning, I got up and I actually knelt by my bed and I prayed one simple one-line prayer every day. I prayed, God, give me wit and wisdom. And I'm still waiting. No, that was a good, that was a good life habit I started with then. And I say it to this day. Can you just say that little prayer? God, give me wit and wisdom today. Ask God. And then B may surprise you because the very next thing James talks about in the second half of that verse, and you ask yourself what this, how this relates to decision-making, is this. He says, and you have to believe that God is good. Ask God, then believe he's good, believe he's generous and grace-filled, and, and he's going to answer that prayer. He says, ask God, then, next phrase, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Just to drive this home, I want you to circle some phrases here. First circle, gives. God's a giver. He's not stingy. In the original Greek language, that word means he is continuously giving. He doesn't give you once and then then stop when you ask for wisdom. And circle, generously. He's not parsimonious, right? Right, right. His resources are unlimited. And to all, not just to the super spiritual people. In fact, it says he gives to all without finding fault. What a blessing. He's a God of grace. He doesn't ever, ever say, you know, you don't deserve to have wisdom. You keep asking for wisdom, then you keep doing stupid, foolish stuff. 
I'm not going to waste my time. You have messed up one too many times. No, I'm not going to give you wisdom anymore. No. He gives generously to all without finding fault. Now, what happens when I don't believe God is good like this? James says, next verse, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Now, around here in Santa Cruz, we all know what that looks like, a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. He's saying, this right here, this is a picture of your soul. This is how unstable you feel emotionally, psychologically, spiritually when you are indecisive. You literally toss and turn all night long asking yourself, did I make the right choice? Should I have decided something else? You can't sleep. You can't eat. You constantly wonder about whether or not you made a good decision. Why? Because you ask God, please guide. But then you think, but maybe he won't. And so you look like this inside. Believe me, I have been there many, many times. As I said, this is something I struggle with in my life. James is saying, when you trust that God is good, then you're not going to feel like this. Now, let's dig into this a little bit deeper because I have to ask, why do I sometimes get like that ocean? Why do I get so stressed about decision-making? I've thought about this a lot. For me... And maybe I think for many of you here, it comes down to two things. First, honestly, I think God might trick me, right? Make it seem like, aha, I made it seem like that was my will over here, but really I tricked you, and this is my will over here. You, you were tricked. Now, where do this, we get this idea of a trickster God? Well, that comes out of Greek mythology or Norse mythology, these pagan mythologies, because in the Greek, the Roman pagan religions like of James' time, the gods were not generous. They were stingy. Uh, you had to really just wrestle a, a gift out of, out of their grip. They were inconsistent. You never knew what they were going to do. They were tricksters when it came to their relationship with human beings. And sometimes that is exactly my image of God, too. But that's not the biblical image of God. Look at this. James says just a few verses later, here's what God's like. Every Good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's saying God's not going to be inconsistent like the Greek gods or stingy like the Greek gods or maybe like your human dad. No, he lavishes you with good gifts, including direction when you ask and he does not change. He is consistent about that. You say, but then how come I don't always sense his direction? We're going to get to that in just a second. But then there's a second reason I get uptight about decision-making, and I talk about this one a lot, because I think this idea messes a lot of people up, and it's this. I think God's will is a dot. I think God's will is one Dot. And what I mean by this is I get this idea that, that there's, there's this field of options out there, like a field of dots. All these things that I could do, but only one, one dot is God's perfect will for me. There's all those cups in the cavern, but only one right choice. And all the other choices lead to death. 
he only wants me to marry this person or go to this college or get this degree or work at this job in this place or buy that kind of a car this year and on and on and on and not that one. And if I mess up, I'm out of the dots. Now, what's wrong with this idea? Well, first, it's not scriptural. Look at those verses in your notes. How does the Bible model decision-making for you and me? It's interesting, several times the Apostle Paul advises the Corinthian Christians on how to make decisions. Why? Because their culture was messed up when it came to decision-making. If you know about Roman and Greek religions, and really almost all the pagan religions, the primary reason they went to temple was to get guidance from oracles or prophets who resided in the temple to, to, to kind of like they were fortune tellers who told them whether or not it was a propitious idea for them to go into business or to move to that place or want to start a family. And that if they didn't get good guidance from the oracle, then they wouldn't make their choice. They, they would not make a move unless they found out what the oracle in the temple had to say about their decision. And basically what Paul models to the Corinthians is that's how pagans make decisions. They're worried about exactly the right choice according to the fortune teller. That's not how Christians make decisions. That's the pagan way of making decisions. He says, here's how Christians make decisions. God gave you a brain. Use it. Just relax. Three, I'll give you three examples. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Paul says, how do you decide how much to give to the Lord? He says, everyone must make, must make up his own mind as to how much to give. Underline that phrase. Make up his own mind. This isn't a cult. I'm not going to tell you how much to give. You have to make up your own mind. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.27. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go... Eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. And he's, he's giving him this advice because, man, if you go to a pagan house, they might offer you food that had been sacrificed in an idol's temple. Is that okay or not? And Paul's giving him advice on what to do. He goes, well, if you're like your neighbor invites you over, they're, they're pagan Romans, and you want to go, then go over there and eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience, right? He does not say, well, if they invite you over, pray about it. And if you get a clear leading, then go to dinner with them. But if you don't get a clear leading, then don't go. No. He goes, mm, do you want to go over to their house? Then go. <laughs> do you not want to go? Then you don't have to go. Wow, how freeing. And look, look at this major choice, 1 Corinthians 7.36. He's talking about marrying a longtime fiancé, Right? And he says, if anybody thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, these are just flesh and blood people, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. What? Circle that phrase, he should do as he wants. Does he say, pray for God to write your fiancé's name in the sky? No, he goes, it's interesting because he actually doesn't even say pray about it, although I'm sure that's understood, but, but, but look at his emphasis he says, do you want to get married to them? Then get married to them. Do you not want to marry them? Then don't. This verse was so freeing for me. I've told some of you before, I agonized for 
literally years over whether or not to marry my wife, Lori. I don't even want to go into detail because it's too embarrassing, but I kept changing my mind. As in, oh, you're going to hate me when I tell you this, but I proposed twice and took it back twice. It is a miracle she stayed with me for 32 years as of last Valentine's Day. Because I was, thank you, but I was like, you know, you've heard the phrase fear of missing out, right, FOMO? Well, this was worse because it was fear of missing out on God's will. So it was like FOMO gua or something like that. I was just so freaked out. I, it, I wasn't indecisive because I didn't want to marry her. I did so much. We had such a great time together. We were fitted so perfectly, but I was afraid I might miss the dot. But this whole idea of there being only one person or one job or one career or one vocation for you, it just doesn't make sense. Because think about it in terms of marriage, for example. If I was supposed to marry just one person and I accidentally married the wrong one, I should have waited another 10 years, right, to meet the right one, then what happens to that person? Well, that person out there was supposed to marry me, but because I wasn't available anymore, they had to marry the wrong one. And the person they married was supposed to marry somebody else, and they married the wrong one. It sets off a chain reaction. This is the reason for all our marriage troubles. We're all married to the wrong person because somebody a thousand years ago made one wrong decision. It's completely illogical. And this is so important because I have, as a pastor, I'm telling you, I've had people come up to me and say, basically, I missed the dot. And usually they're talking about two things, who they married or their vocation. Now I know 10 years on the job I should have gone into or the degree I should have gotten, or now I know 10 years on I met, you know, the love of my life. I shouldn't have married this person. And therefore, for the rest of my life, I've got to settle for second best. With all my heart, let me tell you that that is a lie. If you don't get anything else in this message, get this. There is a lot more freedom in doing God's will than most of us ever really realize. I mean, there's so many ways I could illustrate this in the Bible, but my time is limited. So let me just give you one example. Think of the very first story in the Bible, the biblical story of Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden, and God says, you can eat any tree you want, except for one tree, because that one will kill you. But any of the other trees go for it. He doesn't say pray for a leading about which is my will for you today. No, it's just like, just choose. You got the whole garden to choose from. Now watch this. In our minds, when we imagine what God wants us to do, we tend to inverse the ratio. Like God is saying, don't eat from any tree in the garden except for the one tree that is the right tree for you. You got to find that tree. Good luck. Because anything else you're sinning, that's not how God works ever in the Bible. God says, here are the rules. He sets up parameters in the Bible, moral boundaries. And if we cross those moral boundaries, we're sinning. But all the other options, you have freedom to choose from the trees in the garden. God's a God of grace. He's a good God. He gives you all this freedom. But that begs the question, what is the tree that's off limits? What are those moral boundaries? This is so important. That brings me to C, center on Scripture. Stay centered on Scripture. Why is this important? 
You might be surprised at how many times as a pastor I have seen people get a sensation, some kind of a quiver in their liver, and they call it God's leading. I want to issue a church-wide challenge right now. I'll give you a week, and we'll announce the winner on Father's Day if somebody comes up with this. But show me one example in the Bible of somebody interpreting a feeling or an emotion as the leading of God. It's not there. Now, that doesn't mean feelings are unimportant. It means feelings are unreliable. Your feelings can come from having a bad pizza. (laughs) But feelings are not unimportant. But how do you know if a leading is from God, something you want to do is from God? Well, remember, God's will never contradicts God's word, right? That's a basic. Feelings aren't wrong, but feelings aren't authoritative. God's word is. And the most important things about God's will are in God's word. James says a few verses later, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is so good. How does God's word help me make daily decisions? I want to show you a sentence that for me really gave me so much freedom. Ask not, what is God's will for me? Ask, what is God's will? Period. Isn't that a clarifying question? Not just what is God's will for me in this specific situation, but like what's God's will in general? Because when you think about it, you already know God's will. It's in the Bible. God doesn't need to tell you what to do at every fork in the road. He's already revealed his general plan for your life right in the word of God. You say, what are you talking about? Look at, this is so important. Look at James 3.17. James has just said in chapter 1, pray for wisdom and God will give it to you. And now here he defines what that wisdom looks like. Here's what he's talking about when he's talking about wisdom. And it's not whether to buy the Honda or the Toyota at the used car dealers. Here's what he's talking about. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. That's God's will for your life. Wisdom means learning how to live like that. Somebody who has this kind of Christ-like character in your life, no matter what vocation you choose, no matter who you marry, in your family, in your relationships, no matter what city you're in, be somebody who's peace-loving and considerate and full of mercy, have the character of Christ. And if, if you're moving into a decision where you can't be like this, then you know that that decision is out of the will of God. See, what James is saying is God's will always has more more to do with character than circumstance. Do you see? God wants you to have the right character, and then the circumstances are going to take care of themselves. Okay, now, you might still go, okay, Renee, I get what you're saying, but I mean, I still want to get God's guidance in specific circumstances. How do I do that? Well, don't forget to D, determine to listen. Determine to listen to God's direction. Okay, well, then how do I find God's direction if, if not just kind of through whatever my emotions are, are telling me? Well, I've already said God's word, but also get it from other 
followers of Christ who you know are wise. James says you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak. Quick to listen to what? Well, first, get advice. Get good advice. Proverbs 9.20, listen to advice. Accept instruction. Do you accept instruction? Or are you just defensive all the time? And in the end, you will be what? Wise. That's where wisdom comes from. Let me ask you this. Why is it that precisely when we are making a foolish decision, that is when we don't want anybody's advice? If you're, if you're going, I don't, I'm not gonna, I don't care what anybody says, this is what I'm going to do, that's a deep crimson red warning flag. Get advice and then write this one in your notes. Get the facts. Get the facts. I love this verse. Get the facts at any price and hold on tightly to all the good sense you can get. You know, I'm amazed at how many people get married without ever going to premarital counseling or ever really knowing their fiancé. Take a job just because it sounds good and never investigate the company. Move because they just get a feeling. You need to get advice, get the facts. The Bible's very practical. Okay, so what about when I determine to, to listen, listen to advice, listen to God, but then still, how do I decide what decision to make? Well, that brings us to the final point, E, expect direction but move ahead. Expect direction, but move ahead. Make a choice in one direction or another, right? Again, so much we could say about this, but let me just say this. True confession time. For years, I was messed up by a verse in the book of James in chapter 4, where he says, you should not say Today or tomorrow, I'm going to go to that city. I'm going to spend a year there. I'm going to do business, and then I'm going to come home. He says, don't say that because you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I interpreted that verse to mean, don't make any plans. It's unspiritual to make any plans. And I know a lot of younger Christians who, when I, like I was when I was younger, get trapped in that. I don't know whether or not this is God's will for me, and so I'm not going to do anything. I have heard that bad advice many, many times. People saying, if you don't have a clear leading from God, then don't do a thing. But that is not what James is saying. He says, instead, you ought to say, well, if it's the Lord's will, that's how it's going to turn out. If it's the Lord's will, then we will live and do this or that. He does not say, you ought to just sit there. He's saying, make plans. Go to that city, try to do business for a year, try to come home, but qualify it by saying, but of course, God is sovereign, and he can do whatever he wants. It's like Proverbs 69. Proverbs is kind of like the James of the Old Testament, and it says, we should make our plans counting on God to direct us. The Bible says it's okay to make plans. Move ahead, and while you are moving forward, Expect God to make any mid-course corrections he wants to. Now, again, so many of us are trapped in this idea that God's going to make mid-course corrections by giving me some kind of a leading, and what if I don't sense his leading? If you ask any older saint to look back in their lives, like 10, 20, 30 years, they'll tell you, that during that time of chaos in my life, I, I couldn't sense the leading from God. And I wondered where God was. But now looking back decades later, I can see God was there the whole time. 
and he was guiding me the whole time. He was directing my path even though I didn't sense it. Expecting God to redirect you doesn't mean you expect to always perceive it. It means you have absolute trust in the sovereign will of God and that God in his sovereignty is going to work all things out together for good for his plan. This is so important because you can have paralysis by analysis. Some of you are here and you're saying, but, but, but Renee, how can I know for sure this decision is God's will? You know what? You can't. Let me just tell you, most of the times by life experience and observation and by scripture, you can't and you don't have to know for sure whether or not it's God's will. Unless something's clearly laid out for you in scripture, you can, I will say you can rarely be 100% sure. In fact, uh, last summer I did a summer conference and one of the attendees was a Christian guy who was just finishing his PhD at Stanford and his specialty was decision making. And so I said, I gotta ask, he, what he does is he advises these multi-billion dollar companies in the Silicon Valley about how to make decisions. And so I said, can I grab lunch with you? And so I asked him this question. I said, what, as your specialty is decision making, what misconception do you think most people have to fight against when it comes to decision making? And he said, the idea that anything is ever 100%. He said, almost no decision has a 100% guarantee that that's the right thing to do. And if you wait for that 100%, you'll never do anything. He says, you've got to go based on all the evidence I've got in front of me, and as Christians, based on God's word, whether or not this is a biblical thing to do, I'm just going to take chances and move forward. And he says, that's how you find out whether or not that's a good decision. Somebody said, finding God's will is like the doors at a grocery store. They don't open if you just stand there looking at them. They stay closed unless you're moving toward them. Then they open. And life is like that. So get going. Don't just do nothing until you get direction. Do what's in front of you with all your might, counting on God's direction if he wants to redirect you. Amen? That's the way to get stuff done. Now, I want to say, because I know there's a lot of grads here, let me just get very personal here with one illustration from my life. 25 years ago, when I was asked to come and be the pastor here at Twin Lakes, I was pastoring a church in Tahoe, and it took me so long to make that choice. I was so indecisive. In fact, I was honest to goodness, I was just freaking out. It's almost uh, so embarrassing to reveal this now, but I was, here's how just fevered I was getting in my indecision. I told my wife, Lori, what if Satan this is how I was thinking. What if Satan is trying to tempt me away from ministry in Tahoe by luring me to Twin Lakes Church? <laughs> and Lori looks at me and she goes, yes, Renee, this is how Satan works. He tempts us with chances to do evangelism. That's one of his most successful temptations. <laughs> but what helped me make the decision? exactly these five points. Let me walk you through these. First, I asked God, I prayed for direction. In fact, you know what I did? I, I called a meeting of the whole church up there at Tahoe, and I said, Jesus is the head of this church, so I don't want to just be praying about this. Let's all pray. And here's the facts. I want to listen to your advice, listen to wisdom. What do you think that we should do? 
And I started getting note after note, phone call after phone call saying, Renee, you know, we love you, but I believe God is saying you need to leave. It was like, thank you, I think. <laughs> that was A. B, believe God is good. Lori said, Renee, don't you believe that God is a God of grace? She said, just relax. If we go and we fail, so what? God's going to use that failure in your life. God, his love for you is not based on your performance. My love for you is not based on your performance. Our kids are preschoolers. They'll never remember. It's no big deal. And hearing that, yeah, God's good. It's okay. That, that helped me calm down so that I could choose biblically. And what I did was I read Paul's epistles to the Corinthians because I perceived the Bay Area and Santa Cruz as being a lot like Corinth. And as I read what Paul wanted to do with the Corinthian church, and he wanted to be all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some, I got fired up and I thought I want to do ministry in a, in a vital community where being a Christian and going to church is not the norm. I got charged up about that. And then D, decide to listen. I asked advice specifically of Chip Ingram, who at the time was the pastor at Santa Cruz Bible Church. He'd ministered here. You know, what did he think? Did he think I, I could make a go of it down there? And then finally, I just made a decision. I said, I believe the Lord could use me down there, but if I'm wrong, God can redirect me. Now, I want you to notice, did I say I got a vision? Did I say I heard from God? Did I say I had a strong sense of calling? No, none of those things. But I went through these biblical steps, and I said, you know what? I think this is a godly decision, and God can use it whether I succeed or fail, and so I'm just going to move forward. God wants to set you free from the tyranny of indecision. Now, sometimes the decision might be in the affirmative, like mine was. Sometimes it might be in the negative. No, you know what? I'm going to stay at the church. I think either Twin Lakes Church or Sierra Community Church up in Tahoe, they were all trees in the garden. Would have been fine with God if I'd eaten from any one of those trees or any other trees in the garden, except for what he details in the Bible is not his will, is sin. See what I'm saying? There's freedom there. You can be set free from the tyranny of indecision and focus instead on your character. Now, let me close with this. The most important thing to remember, listen carefully, God doesn't want to just give you guidance. He wants to be your guide in a real personal way and transform your character into the character of Christ. And that's what this verse means. Very famous, one of the most famous two verses in the Bible, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Let's read this out loud together. It's on the screen. It's in your notes. Let me hear you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The key word is trust. Because there will be times you make decisions and all the wheels fall off. And you'll go, was, was I not in the will of God? I really tried to be in the will of God. Is that why everything's going wrong? Listen, a lot of times people are in the dead center of God's will in the Bible and it looks like all the wheels are coming off. That's when you need to trust God's got this. God is good. God is sovereign. And I trust him that he is going to use even this circumstance for his glory. And so that makes this the bottom line. The most important decision I can make is to trust in God. See, God's will is primarily found in relationship. 
where you say to him, I want to put my hand in yours, and I will just trust that you are going to lead me, guide me, grow me wherever you want me to go. And I would love to give you a chance to make that connection right now. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we all need your wisdom so much. And some of us are facing so many decisions. But this is an opportunity to make the most, the most important decision ever. And that's to have a relationship with you as our guide, as our God, as our Lord. And so, Lord, I just want to lead in prayer people all across this room, some for the very first time, some as a recommitment, praying, God, as much as I know how, come into my life. I want you to call the shots. I want to be the person you want me to be. This is the day I am choosing to make the big decision of who is going to be in charge in my life. And it's not gonna be culture, and it's not just gonna be my own needs and wants. It's going to be God, because I wanna be a person of peace and of kindness that's gonna change the world through Christ-likeness so God come into my life. And Lord, others here are already followers of you but have a major decision that they're struggling with. And so Lord, we pray for wisdom trusting that you are sovereign. Help us most of all to be the kind of people you want us to be, Christ-like people, no matter what decision that we make in our lives. Help us to trust you for sovereign direction in our lives. As we make our plans, God, you direct our steps. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.